Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and I'm editor-in-chief of The Cut. On this show, I get to talk to people that we love and admire, or some that we just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path, what got in their way, and how they brought others along now that they've arrived. Eva Longoria Bastón is a true Renaissance woman. Most of us were introduced to her as Gabrielle in the show Desperate Housewives, but she's walked many different paths since her time on Wisteria Lane. The actress now holds titles as a producer, director, activist, entrepreneur, and most recently, podcast host. She joined us to talk about all of her different projects, including stepping behind the scenes as a director and how her activism has shaped her work. Ah! Oh, God, my husband. Sorry. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so our show is called In Her Shoes. So Mm -hmm. I have to start always by asking our guests either what kind of shoes you're wearing now or what are your favorite pair of shoes? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm not wearing any shoes now. (laughs) I'm barefoot. I am barefoot. I'm normally barefoot. My favorite shoe is no shoe. (laughs) I have to work with shoes on. I like, like I grew up on a ranch in Texas. And so I'm usually barefoot in my home and stuff, but um, I'm a sneaker girl now. I am like, yeah, I'm, I'm into comfort. That's what I'm into. Yeah. A hundred percent. I love this like sneaker craze that's come in, uh, that came in during COVID, like elastic pants and sneakers. I was like, yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah. No, I wear a ton of sneakers. I just, I always have specific outfits for them, which is. Right. Me too. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Love it. (laughs) Okay. So you've just finished up Searching for Mexico, six part docuseries on CNN. And I wanted to start there because you traveled to Mexico, exploring different foods and talking about different experiences and culture. Tell me a little bit about what that was like and, you know, how it came about. So Searching for Mexico is a spinoff of Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy. And Stanley Tucci was an Italian-American, like searching for his roots. And I'm a Mexican-American. And I was like, wait, you're going to pay me to go eat my way through Mexico? Best yes. <laughs> Sign me up. Is there drinking involved? Great. Um, and I, I don't think there was an episode I didn't cry because mm-hmm. the world will finally know the Mexico that I know, which is full of beautiful people, beautiful culture, beautiful places, the best beaches in the world. Like, you know, I feel specifically in the United States, like, you know, there's a criminalization and villainization of Mexicans mm-hmm. and 
who and what that country looks like. And I think this show will finally show Mexico in the light it deserves to be shown as because it is a beautiful country. So I was really moved every episode with the history, pre-colonization, pre-colonial times, pre-colonial techniques and food. You know, Mexico as a country is the only cuisine in the world that's protected by UNESCO mm. as a whole because no, it's still tied. Yeah, like even pasta in Italy can't be protected because pasta is technically from Asia. The You know, Asia created the noodle and it like you can always find different connections and how things ended up where. But for Mexico, the cuisine is mostly authentic since pre-colonial, pre-Columbian times. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, what were some new foods that you were able to try or things that you were able to eat that you had had before and then uh, know they tasted yeah. way better? <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't a fan of mole. Do you like mole? Yeah, I love mole. <laughs> See, I, everybody loves mole. And I was like, I don't like it. And everybody would always go like, you just haven't had a good one. You just haven't had a good So uh, when I was in Oaxaca, I got to make mole and have many different moles. And it was really great. There's sweet ones, there's salty ones. Right. And it was really an experience because moles usually have 46 ingredients minimum. Like, so it's like a whole thing. And, and it truly is a mixture between European and indigenous ties. And so it was really, it was really fascinating. So mole was one, I'm not a mezcal person. And, you know, mezcal is like the drink of the, like, this is yeah. like exploding right now. Um, and so I, I, I've moved an inch towards appreciating it because <laughs> before I was like, ah, um, but I'm still a tequila gal. I'm definitely a tequila gal. Yeah. Um, I mean, what was, I'm assuming that the, the experience also was very introspective. Did you learn anything about yourself or, um, mm -hmm. any, anything about, you know, the, your perspective on life that shifted after doing the show? Yeah. I mean, uh, so much, right. Like so much, uh, I'm, uh, Spaniard by blood. My whole life, I'm like, I'm Mexican and proud Mexican. And then I did my DNA and I'm like 80% Spaniard. I'm like, oh my God, I was the colonizer. <laughs> like, <gasps> and reckoning with that, specifically after seeing the beautiful indigenous cultures that are in Mexico and yeah. still alive to this day, like being in Veracruz, which is where the conquest really started and happened where the Spaniards landed. Um, it was probably my favorite state because to this day, a culmination of so, so many cultures. And you can see that reflected in the food. There's obviously the Caribbean influence. There's a huge African influence. There's a street, uh, La, La Hueca, that because the African trade, the slave trade went through Veracruz up to the United States, mm -hmm. it, the the Africans that stayed in, in this area created this beautiful street where they're, the food and the culture and the color, it's just like, the, it's, a, it's also a protected street because it was, it was just so ingenious, like what they did and built with nothing right. in the 1500s. Mm -hmm. um, and Mexico was one of the first countries to ban slavery. And so if the slave trade came, they did a huge campaign to say, you are free in this country. Do not let them take you further on. And yeah. it was a huge part of that particular history. And so because of that, the food and the culture is still very much present in that state. Mm -hmm. Um Asian culture is super prevalent in that state because it was the port. So Indian culture, Asian culture, African culture, Caribbean, it's like this insane melting pot of beauty that 
is in that region and still still present. And I feel like, you know, that that presence in food is a protest to colonization. It's mm-hmm. like you will not change us. You will not conquer us. We will continue to hold on to our traditions and our culture. And I think it's it's beautiful to see it reflected still to this day. Um, and so I also think like, um, you know, the tortilla, the flour tortilla in the north uh, I'm a big flour tortilla person. And ba- if you know what a flour tortilla is, it's almost like a pita bread, which is almost like, a you know, there's a lot of origins to it. But the right. main origin is uh, the Jews that fled the Spanish Inquisition and went to Mex- went to the New World, which was Mexico. Um, this was their unleavened bread oh, that okay. actually ev- evolved into the tortilla. And so they were trying to hide their Judaism within this uh, – uh, tortilla and and trying to hold on to it. Cabrito, which is goat, it's very popular in, in the north where the Jews settled, and um, they instead of eating pork, which was the main protein, um, they chose goat um, just to hide again to hide their religion. And so it's just amazing how resilient these people were within this uh, this culture of New Spain and this kind of colonization period. And it didn't change my point of view. It just enlightened me to uh, have a great, an even greater appreciation because I, I really believe I'm a global citizen. I feel like we all live in this beautiful world. We yeah. should be kinder, have more empathy, have more compassion, really understand each other instead of being so divisive and and defining ourselves by our differences. It's like, no, we're way more similar than you think. Um, and so just walking away from that meaning being deepened, right? Like if you just, like I said, you, I got to see it really present itself within the food everywhere I went in every state, the French influence in, in Jalisco and the U S influence in the North. And like I said, the, the African, Asian and Indian influence in this, in the East. I mean, it's just, beautiful. So I think it's just, it was so enlightening. And I, I go, I was a trip of a lifetime for me. And I said, yeah. I wish people, people would travel more because then you'd have a greater appreciation for, for these cultures and these people, like the same people here in the United States who are going taco Tuesday are the same people saying, build that wall, yeah. build that wall. And so you go, no, 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 no. You you can't appreciate just this one part of the culture, but not the people. Exactly. So I, I hope that this show really um, reflects how beautiful the people are. Yeah. No, I'm very excited for you. Um, and, <laughs> and such amazing storytelling always around food. I feel like it's such a always. communal conversation always. So very Super. looking forward to it. I want to talk about your film that premiered at Sundance. Um, which is about the rivalry between two boxers, Julio and Oscar. Um, what drew you to this project and what made you decide oh. that like, this was something that you really wanted to do? I didn't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oscar DeLoya has been a friend of mine for 20 years and he called me up and he was like, hey, will you, it's the anniversary of our fight, can you do a documentary? And I was like, what, like a boxing doc? No. Oh my God, that sounds so boring. Like, <laughs> like jabs and punches and stuff? Like I was like, I have zero desire. But what I remembered about that particular fight, which was Julio Cesar Chavez, which was the campeón de México. He was, he is still is to this day, like worship and revered as just the greatest champion out of Mexico to ever live. Um, and when Oscar challenged him, 
there was a huge divide in the Mexican community here in the United States. And that's mm -hmm. why the name of the film is called La Guerra Civil, which means the Civil War, because households were divided. Because mm -hmm. here was this Mexican-American kid challenging the Mexican. And up until that point, all Mexicans really supported Oscar because they were like, he's us. He held up the Mexican flag when he won the um, the gold medal for the U.S. I mean, who does that? He's so proud of his Mexican heritage. Mm -hmm. He he waved a Mexican flag in the ring with the gold medal. Like He, he almost got disqualified for it. Um, so Mexicans loved Oscar because they were like, he's one of us. I remember Oscar holding up the Mexican and American flag and I go, oh my God, that's me. I'm both things. We can be both. And once he challenged um, uh, Julio, Mexicans immediately go, oh, wait, well, you're not that Mexican, mm -hmm. right? So it was an exploration of what it means to be Mexican enough and identity. And, uh, and especially since a lot of us now are hyphenates, right? We're Chinese American, we're Cuban American, we're Mexican American. I mean, we, we straddle two worlds and sometimes the assimilation process in the United States says, forget that other one, you're this. And you're like, no, I want to honor it. I am, this is part of who I am. So it, it, the documentary was really an exploration of identity through this boxing match. And it's pretty compelling. Yeah. I mean, when you've talked about that and obviously a generational riff and, and as you were saying, a divide in households, but also, you know, not being enough. I think all people of color, we've all felt this in, in certain circumstances. Is there anything in your personal life or career that's, you know, been challenging as far as you not feeling Mexican enough or feeling like you've, you know, you're trying oh, to yeah. still find your identity in that? Yeah, because I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I speak it now because I live in Mexico City and I'm married to a Mexican and and it's my third language. I, my second language is French. And so I remember just feeling not enough because I didn't speak the language. Like just that in itself, you feel a little alienated and kept apart. But I remember moving to Hollywood and I couldn't get Latina roles because I didn't have an accent. And every time I went into an audition, they're like, could you do an accent? Could you do an accent? Uh, and I was like, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't have one. I don't, I don't know uh, how to do one. <laughs> I was like, I was not talented enough. And then I would go out for white roles and they were like, oh, but you're brown. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, I can play Alice. I think I could play Alice, you know? <laughs> I moved to Hollywood. I ended up playing a lot of Italians. They thought I was like, Eva Longoria. I was like, sure. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, but yeah, so definitely on both sides. I'm not Mexican enough and I'm not American enough. And so navigating that is is you just have like a daily identity crisis until you really reconcile that when people go, oh, you're half Mexican, half American. And I go, no, I'm a hundred percent Mexican and a hundred percent American at the same time. But I feel like I've, I've probably experienced more barriers as a woman, not, you know, there's been more sexism mm. in our industry, you know, compound that by being a, a woman of color. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, but most, mostly like, oh, uh, you know, women have to be twice as good, twice as prepared, twice as fast, twice as everything. We just have to be twice everything to even, you know, get considered for jobs, um, specifically behind the camera, producing, directing, writing. Yeah. That's what I actually was going to ask you. Was that what led you to wanting to step behind the camera more and produce and direct? Well, I really wanted 
to a creative. I've always been a producer, director, turned actor. I've always loved the business side of things. I think people think I'm as an actor, turned producer. I've always been a director, producer. And so once I had the opportunity to do it, I just, I jumped. I was like, yes, I'm going to do this. And I did it because of the, the lack of representation of Latinos in the media, in front of and behind the camera. And so I wanted to be in a position of power, which is hiring. Mm-hmm. As a producer, you get to hire people. And I wanted to be in a position of of hiring and building a pipeline of talent because like everybody, it's like the chicken or the egg. We don't get the opportunity of experience to get the job, but I can't get the job because I don't have the experience. Right. So like, I, it's like, I can't give me the job so I can <laughs> show you I can do the job. And so that's what I wanted to do is give this opportunity to many people so that now they have it on their resume and you can't say, well, she's never done a TV show. Well, she's never done this or that. And you're like, yes, she has. And she did well. Um, and so, yeah, that was the really the um, inspiration behind getting getting behind the camera. I also meant to bring up Flaming Hot, which is your feature film directorial debut um, and sounds so fun. And I really was interested in, in what made you want to choose this as a project, which I've read about is a Mexican-American who turned Flaming Hot Cheetos into a global phenomenon. I'm a huge mm-hmm. Flaming Hot fan. Also. Are you family hot? Yes. I like I like the puffs, though. I like the puffs. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I um, like Doritos, actually. I oh, like yeah. Flaming Love. Hot Doritos. So Flaming Hot is a billion-dollar brand today. Uh, just the I've been part hot. of the funding because I've been funding yeah. it my whole life. <laughs> and it was the idea of it came from the Mexican janitor who worked in the in the factory. His oh, name wow. was Richard Montañez, and he is considered the godfather of Latino marketing because he was one of the first people to say, "You guys aren't paying attention to us. You know, we we buy things differently. We search for things differently." And so. If you're Mexican, you know, if you buy potato chips, we we put chile on them. We put tapatio, we put valentina, we put we put chile on them. And he was like, why not sell them with chile? Why not, you know, cater to this market? Yeah. Um, and so he was the first guy to do that. But I mean, his life story, because the movie's not about the creation of the Flaming Hot Cheeto. It's about his life and his life was, he was a gang member since he, he was born into it. He, his grandpa was a gangbanger. His dad was a gangbanger. He was a gang leader. Um, you know, he shouldn't be alive today, much less successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's just like that American dream. And he knew he could be more and do more and, his resilience. And he'll tell you, he's like, I'm the smartest, most uneducated bato you'll ever meet. You know, he's <laughs> just like, I'm not educated, but man, man, am I smart? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people from, from communities of color will identify with that struggle. Yep. Of like, no, I, I don't got that elite education or I may not have this, but he, he always said, Richard's line is he goes, I don't got no degree, but I have a PhD. I'm poor, hungry, and determined. Yep. That's real. And that's real. And that's sometimes better fuel, you know, for going after things you want in life. And so it's good. It's a beautiful movie. Everybody's going to identify with it. Love, love. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I know you do so much from directing and acting and you have a ton of businesses, but I do want to talk about your activism and why that's important to you, because I do think that 
for so many people in the public eye, they don't, you know, they don't realize that that platform and, and using their voice to speak up on things really does matter. And it really is so important to be intentional with your platform and the voice that you have. And I just have such admiration for for all of the times that you've always, you know, spoken up. And obviously it means so much to you. And so I was wondering if there was a moment or things that have happened um, in the past couple of years that made you really, you know, want to step into your power and, and speak up more or that you were really passionate about as part of your own mission? I was really lucky to be introduced into community work and philanthropy and volunteerism at a young, young age. My my oldest sister has a mental disability, um, so she's special needs. My mother became a special education teacher because of her. So some of my earliest memories are of Special Olympics. Like I remember, you know, my mom, would, I was like six and she made me be a hugger at the special. That was like, you were a hugger. You, your job was to hug athletes. That's sweet. And I remember, you know, sleeping at the Salvation Army as my mom and my sisters were volunteering. Like I remember being at the Boys and Girls Club, having to volunteer so that they would take my sister, who was special needs, into one of their karate programs. That just embedded into me this, this idea that it takes a community. It takes a community to raise a community. And I've just carried that. I was going to do this work whether I was famous or not. And I was doing this work. I just happened to one day get a bigger microphone. And I remember one of my mentors, Dolores Huerta, had said, she goes, you know, one day you're going to have a voice, so you better have something to say. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what am I going to say? What do you mean? I didn't know what that meant. And then throughout the years, just honing in and and really defining what my life's work was going to be about. Not the movie star stuff, but the my life's work, my philanthropy and and giving back. And so I don't really see this as a celebrity's job. I feel like everybody should partake in. Yeah, that's the point. Everyone should be doing it. Yeah, I think the biggest myth is you got to be rich and famous to be a philanthropist. No, you don't. Most of the biggest philanthropies in the world were created by a mom who was upset, you know, a mom who fought injustice, you know, a dad who wants guns out of schools. You know, most stuff is created by extraordinary people who want to see change in the world. And so I think we should uh, follow suit. Yeah. I mean, you've also talked about this a lot on your podcast connection with a lot of people just being vulnerable about changes that they want to make in the world or just trying to find their way. Um, what was it like to start your own podcast and, you know, have a, I think, be on the other side since you're probably used to being interviewed so much, um, <laughs> but also, you know, push some conversations forward with people and kind of challenge some some worldviews that they may have had going into it? Yeah. I mean, when we were in COVID, I remember everybody saying, you know, I just want to go back to normal. I just want to go back to normal. I want things to go back to normal. And I was like, I don't. There's a lot of lessons I learned through this time to reflect when the world was shut down. I mean, I hate that it took a global pandemic, but I've never not worked in my life. And, And to stop and sit and reflect and analyze my connections with my mom, my husband, my child, my career. I mean, you really have to sit with those connections. And so I I created the podcast to talk to experts in many fields about 
connecting better. Like, I don't want to go back. I want to go forward. I want to move forward with my uh, evolution as as a human being. And so how can I be better at those connections? Connections to spirituality, your connection to the idea of money, connection to politics, connection to everything. We're connected to everything and, and connection to each other. And most of all, your connection to yourself. So I've had some amazing conversations on the podcast with experts on happiness, on depression, on anxiety, on emotional resilience, on, I mean, just expert after expert. And, and I find that the conversations are really helpful. But to be the interviewer has been fun because I am curious by nature. I love asking questions yeah. and I love going, but why? But how? But when? Oh my God. Like <laughs> I love it. I love learning. You always learn from talking to people if you just listen. You learn yeah. a lot more by listening. This is true. This is true. <laughs> Something we talk about at the cut a lot is just women, you know, and and femmes who read the cut wanting a balance around self care and being so busy. And I'm curious of as you've had all these conversations with others and analyzing it yourself, um, what have you learned about trying to take care of yourself, but also you know just having a lot on your plate and trying to do all the things that you want to do, but also just making space for yourself in the process. Yeah, I mean self care to me, I think it's probably the most difficult for women to do because by nature, we are the caretakers of our children, caretakers of the elderly. You know, uh, we're, we're the CEOs of our family. We're making the financial decisions, the educational decisions, the healthcare decisions, that we're the human taxi, you know. Um, and so it is hard to step back and, and do that. I also think for me, I, I, you know, self-care isn't a trip to Cabo, like it doesn't have to be huge. <laughs> right. For me, I yeah. love taking a bubble bath. Like, man, if you want to get me a good gift, get me a bath bomb because you know all you. Because I won't, <laughs> I won't buy them for myself. I don't buy them for myself. So when somebody gives me a bath bomb, I'm like, because oh! it's to me, it's like that's my time by myself in the tub. I love, you know, that meditation. I meditate every day and I work out every day as my mental health. So people are like, you're always working out. Um, and they think it's vanity, but it re- that's my like, that's my hour where I can really get my endorphins pumping and prepare me for the day. It's my mental health hour. And so yeah. I think a lot of times people think self-care is I got to go to the spa. I have to get a massage. Like it could be many things. It could be yeah. sit down and take a deep breath, um, journal, you know, sit down and name five things you're grateful for today. And so I do those things every day and I feel like it just centers me. Um, and I also think, like you said at the beginning of this podcast, you've been busy, busy, busy. And I just changed that word to productive. You know, how was your mm-hmm. day? Productive. Because whatever you're doing in your day is to, towards a goal that you have. You want to yeah. be more successful. You want to earn more money. You want to, you know, have a bigger voice, whatever it is. So it's not, you're not busy. You're productive because you're doing shit towards something, right? <laughs> so like it's how you talk to yourself is a form of self-care as well. Yeah. No, I hear that. I hear that. Do you find that it's hard to balance it all or do you find that you were ready and equipped for this moment in your life and all in all of the, you know, the productive business of it all? Yeah. I mean, I'm built this way. I like, like I have to have 10 things juggling in the air. Um, if you give me one thing, I'm like, ah, <laughs> but I have an amazing team around me too. So, I mean, I'm definitely privileged, you know, I, I've worked hard my whole life to put myself in a financial situation that I don't have to think about. Um, I need to take that job. I need to do this thing. I need to say yes. Like I, I, I'm in a position of saying no and I like it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I understand I have that 
privilege and I have an amazing family that supports me and takes care of me and helps me raise my son and, you know, my mom and my sisters and my husband and his, his siblings. I mean, we're just, it takes a community of people. Um, I do think though, my, my superpower is, is time management. I'm very, Mm. I, I think there's 48 hours in a day and I'm very efficient with that time. You know, time is my greatest wealth. I mean, that is where I'm going to, I'm either investing in it, spending it or wasting it. It's just like money. You're either investing money, spending money or wasting money. And the same thing with time. And so I like to invest my time in things that are, are going to produce fruit. You know, they're going to be fruitful. And if it's not, it's, it's out of my day. Yeah. And, and that that's to do with people too. Who are you and who are you investing in? Yeah, yeah. You know what relationships are you investing in? Um, and so, yeah, I, I usually don't spend hours on Instagram and sitting around. Like every minute of my day is is packed and moving, and uh, and I like it that way. Okay, so what are you investing your time in for the future? Like, what's what's the next iteration of things that you want to do, or that you can at least tell us about? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I haven't been in front of the camera in a while, so I'm going back in front of the camera for um, a show for Apple. Um, Yes, I'll be shooting in Spain for the next five months, uh, this amazing show. It's a dramedy uh, called Land of Women, and that's going to be – I mean, I haven't been in front of the camera in so long. I'm, I feel like I'm a little nervous. I'm like, do I? How do I? How do I do this again? Um, Five months is so long. How do you even prepare to be gone that long? Or do you oh commute? Do you commute back and forth? Do you? No, no, no. We're I'm there, which is funny. You say that because I'm there. It's hot when I arrive, but it's going to be cold by the time I leave. So my oh, wow. my packing is a little schizophrenic right now. Um, but yeah, just really preparing. I've made lists. I've made to-do lists. I've made things I have to buy here, things should I should buy there. You know, uh, the plugs are different. So I need a new blow dryer. Like, I mean, all <laughs> ca- like I, I'm like a list maker. I'm definitely excited about it and I can't wait. Um, and nervous and, you know, a good anxiety. I have a good anxiety towards it. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank so you. Good. So nice to speak with you. In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our producer and editor for this episode is Taka Zen. Our engineer is Brandon McFarlane, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>